Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to a brand new episode of Hi, Jinx, with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, my guest is Guillermo Diaz, who has featured in many, many wonderful television shows and is also acting in the new revolutionary groundbreaking film, Bros, starring an all LGBTQ plus cast, even in the straight roles. We're going to talk all about Guillermo's work as an actor, Guillermo's beginnings as an actor in business school, and we will also talk about the lovely and nuanced conversation of code switching in Hollywood. (laughs) It's a wonderful conversation. We crack each other up, and I think it's very insightful. Anyone who's thinking about a career in acting should listen to this episode right now. It's all happening today on Hi Jinx. So hunker down, buckle up, and sink your teeth into some brand new Hi Jinx. M. Oh. M. Mom. Hello everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today we are joined by actor, advocate, and all-around handsome man, Guillermo Diaz. Hi Guillermo. Hi Jinx. <laughs> I want to start by um listeners can't see but you have green hair currently and you said um before we begin recording you're not working right now so you get some time with some green hair is this a, a way you treat yourself between jobs <laughs> Yeah I was I had just finished a film in New York and I got back and I was like and I was about to do a photo shoot actually and it was kind of like an alien themed photo shoots I was like fuck it I'm gonna dye my hair green and then and that was like a month ago and I've kept it because I kind of like it it looks cute (laughs) I have to confess um this is uh, random and silly but um 
First, let me ask, and I ask a lot of people this question because I want to know, is this true for me or is this true for most humans? When you have a crush on someone at some point in your life and they have something really specific about themselves, do you then later find yourself attracted to people just because they have that same attribute? I'll explain. When I was in high school, I went to the Oregon Queer Youth Conference, which was a huge, um, like, three-day workshop conference where queer teenagers taught workshops to other queer teenagers. And some of it was, like, I, I think I taught a... Um, a improv workshop and someone taught like a gender studies workshop and my friend Yoni taught a tango class and I got paired up with this very fetching punk queer person named Roger who had green hair and ever since then Anytime I see someone with green hair, it immediately catches my eye. And I don't know if it's a kink or just a a predilection, but... Should I take my shirt shirt off? Yeah, this should just become an OnlyFans comment. Yes, let's do an OnlyFans (laughs) slash hijinks podcast. (laughs) I love that. I I didn't even know I'm like, you're, you're into green hair. That's awesome. That's hot. (laughs) Um, In the same vein, I'm really into speech impediments because my very first crush ever had a speech impediment. So now whenever I meet someone with a speech impediment, they're just like instantly more dreamy to me. Do you have anything like that? Like a longstanding, um, let's call it an affinity for any specific attribute just because it reminds you of an early life crush? (laughs) That's so funny when you said speech impediment. I thought of Milo Ventimiglia, that you know that actor who's so cute and he kind of has a lisp, but he talks like he kind of talks like this to the side of his mouth. He's on that really hot show. Oh my god, that Mandy Moore is on. I'm so bad at. I don't watch it, but I know it's like a I, huge show. I'm bad at all these things too. Don't worry. Yeah, but Milo Milo Ventimiglia. He used to. He was on Gilmore Girls for a while, and he's super hot. But he has a little bit like a lisp, like guys with lisps. I always thought that was so, so sexy, something about it, because they kind of turn their mouths to the side and they have a little bit of lisp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about um Steve from Sex in the City? Oh, um, I love <laughs> Steve, in the, you know, during the show. And now in this, you know, in what is it called? In Just Like That, the new... Yeah, the new show that's on HBO. I feel like they've turned him into like a 98 year old man. He's like got a hearing aid. He's like, what, Miranda, what's happening? And I'm like, what the fuck? They really did. Yeah, they really did that to Steve. I I think they had to pave the way for, you know, Miranda's new love interests. Um, But I basically joined TikTok just to share my Steve impression, and I haven't done it since, but I should probably get that going again. It's just a lot of me going, ah, jeez, Miranda, Uh, I don't know what's going on over here. You're always uh, telling me one thing and then doing another. Uh, I don't know. I want to be with you. (laughs) Oh, my God. Me and my friends are constantly doing Steve impressions. Miranda, I didn't know that. (laughs) Miranda. Oh, God, yeah. It's so much fun imitating him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, 
We have lots to talk about with your extremely um, wonderful and colorful career. Um, but let's start before Guillermo Diaz, the actor. And let's talk a little bit about growing up in the Bronx and something I think lots of queer people are familiar with, code switching. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I grew up in, in Washington Heights and I went to high school in the Bronx, but Washington Heights is like, you know, like a hop, skip and a jump to the Bronx. So I spent most of my childhood in, in the Bronx. Um, and yeah, man, I went to a high school on Fordham Road in, in the 80s. In, you know, not such a great neighborhood. Uh, I remember one time I got mugged inside my high school from these like thugs that came yeah. from from the streets. And I got mugged while I was in school, which is sort of paints a picture of the type of school that I went to. Um, but, yeah, you know, I knew I knew pretty early on that I was uh, that I was gay and, and I would get made fun of a lot, made fun of a lot for being you know, sort of a uh, feminine and, and, uh, and the way I sat and the way I talked and the way I moved. So really quickly, I learned to, you know, to change all those things and, and just be hyper aware of how I was moving my hands and how not to cross my legs and not to talk a certain way. And which is so sad at that age. Right. I mean, I was a kid, I was like, you know, early teens and to already start thinking, Oh, I can't be myself. I have to be something completely different so people don't fuck with me or so I don't get beat up or, you know, made fun of or, um, yeah, it's, it's super sad now thinking back on it, you know, but mm -hmm. it is what it is. And it's what a lot of us had to sort of deal with and, and grow up with. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was never good at playing, playing straight. I, I, um, refer to myself as visibly queer from a young age. Like, um, you know, it's this double-edged sword of having a really supportive family who let me basically do whatever I wanted at home. I made dresses out of my mom's night shirts. I put on shows in our living room. I identified heavily with um, Morticia Adams. Uh, <laughs> there was a there was an Elvira-inspired um, I think she was a goose on the show Darkwing, Darkwing Duck, and her name was Morgana, and she was inspired oh, oh. by Elvira. I was obsessed with her as a kid, and my family knew all this about me, and I remember when I started school was the first time, like, my grandma had to have a talk with me about how s certain things I do at home I couldn't do at school. So I had to, I used to wear this red Afghan blanket that I would wrap around my body and tie in little knots to make dresses out of. I wanted to wear it to school. And it wasn't that my family didn't support me, but they knew me wearing a blanket as a dress to school would cause certain issues. So my grandma would leave the blanket for me at the door of my house. And when I would come in from school, the first thing I would do is drop off the backpack and put on the blanket. Oh, my God. That said, um, my mannerisms, uh, you know, my my personality and my mannerisms, being able to live so freely at home, it was hard. I didn't always know how to turn it off. I would tone myself down and I would try my best to take up as little space as possible, which is why I now have a posture problem I'm working on. <laughs> but... Um, I was still very visibly queer. And my, uh, you know... 
for me, it wasn't about code switching. It was about becoming best friends with all the straight guys' girlfriends. Uh, <laughs> I literally, in high school, this um, this uh, this one guy who's now a famous in- NFL football player. So yeah. even my bullies are famous. Uh, <laughs> this is my joke. I'm so extra, even my bullies are famous. Um, but, but not but, more famous uh, than you. <laughs> <laughs> But I um yeah I uh one day this 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 um now NFL football player tried to steal an umbrella from me and then I told his girlfriend about it later and I think she withheld <laughs> I think she withheld from him for like a week as punishment and word got around the school and after that not many people messed with me. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. I love that. That's so I was thinking back too. I I feel like I I became an actor because I the first thing I did on stage was in high school and I did a, a talent show and we did a medley of songs of the by the Beastie Boys and it was the first time that those kids that were bullying me and you know talking shit to me and all that stuff started to like me and and told me oh my god you were so great and and I identified acting and being on stage with people accepting me Mm, and that's mm, what mm. sort of propelled me into being like, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I have to do. And of course, I, I had a, a love for performing. And I think that sort of grew as the time went on. But my, I remember my first initial um, thought when I was on stage and came off was, oh, my God, people are accepting me now that I've been on stage. And so this is what I have to do to be accepted, which is also a little bit sad, right, to think, oh, I have to become someone else for people to to, um, you know, be kind to me and not mess with me anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I can totally identify with that because, you know, I would occasionally, like I ran for student government at one point and I was not the more qualified person, but I won because I told jokes and did a tap dance. And I do think, you know, and it's kind of, it's, it's, um, it's absolutely what you said. And I think it instilled some kind of thought in me that I'm most valuable when I'm like playing the clown, basically. Yes. And it wasn't long after that that I was doing drag. And there's so much, you know, overlap between clowning and drag. You know, I think this kind of set me on a path for comedy and showmanship at an early age. But that doesn't mean that it didn't come later with some kind of emotional distress of like, do people like me the person or do they only like me the stage persona? And that's something you unpack with your therapist but if you like the work it's kind of one of those things where it's like if you like the work then you kind of are thankful for whatever brought you to the work I mean I always knew I wanted to be a performer I just didn't know how I was going to do that and high school is when I started drag and it was really like oh this is where all things coalesce for me but now my work as an adult is to be like okay so drag queens aren't just clowns we're still human beings and you know let's uh, let's treat us as such (laughs) um what were some of uh, so we we've heard about this Beastie Boys performance? What were some other early acting experiences for you that um, yeah. set you on this path in life? Yeah, well, the Beastie Boy, Boys performance was in like sophomore year of high school. I was like seventeen, and then the next year when I was a junior, we did Dirty Dancing, 
and that was the Patrick Swayze role, of course. Um, we tried to do the lift, you know, we had like five guys lifting her up and then I sort of <laughs> faked holding her, <laughs> but, and all this is on tape. Like all, somebody was, you know, taking this on, on a freaking VHS camera. So it's out there somewhere. <laughs> um, it, We've just got to get the, uh, what, what uh, they could do VHS to digital, right? Oh yeah. We just got to find the tape. Get a tech person. This could be on YouTube by tomorrow. <laughs> yes, yes. I think I, I have the, my friends from high school. I have a couple of friends that I'm still, you know, close with. And they, one of them I know has the Beastie Boy tape. Anyway, I need mm-hmm. to do that. <laughs> but then I went to, and then when I got into college, I went to a, a business school called Baruch College, which, which funnily enough, it's the college that uh, Jennifer Lopez went to. And I, I knew at that point, I knew I wanted to act and that's all I wanted to do. But I was like, okay, I'm going to go to a business school. So at least I have something to fall back on. So I get a degree in business and, you know, it's not just all, you know, acting, 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 all, just in case it doesn't work out. I can be a, a businessman, I guess. I don't know. I, even though in the back of my head, I was like, this is never happening. Um, and then yeah. I did all the plays in, in college. Of course, I gravitated to the, you know, the drama the drama kids in college. And I did uh wait until dark that play wait until dark. And I played Mr. Rote, which is the guy that, you know, terrorizes Audrey Hepburn in the movie. And, and then I did arms in the man. And yeah, I did a bunch of plays in college and then, and then I dropped out cause I was like failing math and I was like, okay, I'm out of here. But at that point I was super into, you know, acting and I had done some stuff and then I, an agent signed me and yeah. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. First, the bad news SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I went to acting school for college because I I did I I, I did just go all in, but um, it was kind of it's funny because I decided to go all in, but it was actually at the very last minute because my plan was just to go from high school to the same, um, you know, uh, Portland State University where you know most of the people from my high school were going for college um those who stayed in town and um I was just going to major in English and then at the last minute a friend of mine um gave me his application to Cornish College cuz he decided he wasn't going to pursue acting and so at the last minute I just applied auditioned wow. got into Cornish and I was like well I guess I I guess I'm gonna go full in on this and my family was very supportive of it um emotionally but financially it was a struggle every single year which is what led me to being a janitor all four years at my college no way were you really 
I was known as the singing, the singing janitor because I would go in from, I would work from six to 10 every morning and I would put on, you know, my show tunes in my, in my headphones and practice what is now my repertoire today. (laughs) All the songs that I memorized in college are now what I do in my drag act. So. (laughs) And then you would start your classes like after 10, after you were done. With work. Yeah. Take a nap at lunch. Take a nap before rehearsals after school. (laughs) Take a nap in the middle of a class because I have no choice because my body was shutting down. Anyway, um, so I I always, you know, my my family being supportive of me wanting to be a performer my whole life also were very realistic with me. Like my grandfather, who had worked some in show business. Um, he was a band manager for a short time, um, and he told me, you know, if you're going to go into this as a profession, you're going to face a lot of rejection and a lot of people being really awful to you. Are you sure you want that? And I was like, well, I don't want that, but I know what I know what I'm best at in life, and I know <laughs> if I did anything else, it would be kind of half-assed. So and how was your family? Up with, yeah, if that's what I have to deal with, then I'll, I'll figure it out, but yeah. Yeah. How was your family and the people in your life when, uh, so you went to bo- a business school, I was a boarding school, you went to business school and you dropped out. Were people in your life um, flabbergasted? Were they supported? It sounds like you had an agent soon after, so it seems like you. Yeah, you, yeah. You, I think my my family had always been supportive of, of me wanting to to be an actor. And I think they saw how passionate I was about it and how driven I was. I remember back in the day, I mean, this is back in the day, backstage, it used to be a newspaper that you would buy and then you would, you know, circle different ads that had open calls for auditions for plays or student films or, you know, extra work. And I did all of that. I did a ton of background work and um, I did children's theater was like one of the first like paying gigs that I did. And uh, so I think my family saw how invested I was in it and how, um, focused I was and dedicated. So when, and when I dropped out, I only dropped out because, well, I was failing math and I knew I needed to pass that prerequisite math class to continue on to my next, um, semester or whatever. But luckily at that point, I I became part of a theater company called Labyrinth. They used to, it used to be called Intar Lab and it was a group of Latino actors that started a theater company. And now it's, it's grown into this, um, sort of really well-known a company in New York city and Philip Seymour Hoffman was a part of it. And Daphne Rubin Vega's in it and Liza Cologne and David Zayas, all these wonderful um, actors, Sam Rockwell is a part of it. Uh, but anyway, I got into that theater company and I, I did their first play called rough house. And, uh, and that's where an agent saw me and, and signed me. And I remember the first audition they sent me on was Carlito's way. And I didn't, I didn't book it. Um, but then the next audition was for a movie called Fresh, with Sam Jackson and um, Giancarlo Esposito and and Boucher Wright. Uh, but and then I booked that film. So I booked like my second audition that the agency set me up, set me on. And and you know, so again, my family was like, okay, he's he's really doing this. He's into it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And then I just kept going, kept moving forward. You know. That's that's wonderful to hear because um, 
as we know, there's there's a lot of no's in this industry. There's a lot of rejection and a lot of letdown. Um, and to book your second to book your second audition is pretty right. pretty damn impressive. Right, but but also just so people understand, before I booked that second audition, it was like years of background work, mm. student films, and no, 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 you shouldn't be doing this from other people, not from my family. But, um, you know, there was a, it was a long road before I booked that, that first, first movie. Um, so it was, it, it's, it was a struggle. And, and, you know, it's funny that a lot of people don't, don't um think about or realize either that even once you've made it, I guess I'm doing air quotes, um, you know, quote unquote, made it. It's still a struggle. I still have to audition. I still get a ton of no's and rejection. And, you know, it, it, it ebbs and flows in those moments when you're like, oh, my God, I need I need to book a job because I got to pay rent. And, you know, that that never really goes away. At least it, it hasn't for me. But um, but in a way that keeps you it keeps you honest. Right. It keeps you working hard and and uh and all of that. So, so there, there's a positive in that as well, you know, not getting it all and, and being like, all right, I'm set for life. I'm sure some, you know, obviously some actors and performers get that, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think about it a lot um, in terms of, you know, the idea of the big break. And I think culturally we're conditioned to believe that you get if you get your big break that's your chance to make it and if you do it right you make it and you're set for life and if you do it wrong um it passes you by and that's just not reality that's the that's the that's the fantastical version of the truth um i believe rue even said at some point where it's like there's not one big break. There's multiple opportunities in life where the universe gives you a path or opens a door for you. And it's about – and then once you cross through that threshold, there's going to be another one. And, you know, I very much convinced myself just because of growing up in America, seeing, you know, the seeing only the rose-tinted version of fame and success stories – um, I really convinced myself that like winning season five, this is my big break. And whatever happens now is going to, you know, I was striking while the iron was hot. Yeah. I was taking every opportunity, going every avenue I could. And then when when that moment kind of passed by and there was a new winner and um, focus shifted. I felt like, oh no, I fucked it up. I'm not world, fa- you know, like I'm not right. in movies. I'm not, I don't have my own TV show. I fucked up my big break somehow. And I really got kind of, you know, I, I felt very down for quite a while when I felt like I fucked up my big break. And then when I learned is I went back to the work that it back quote unquote back to as in I fully leaned back into what I was doing before Drag Race, writing shows with my music partner, writing shows with collaborators and focusing on creating my own work. And when I got back into why I started in the first place, I started a steady incline up to my next big break. (laughs) 
That's, so that's look so, at me. That's, yeah, that's two so big great. breaks in life. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting because that's sort of where where I went like a couple of years ago, even during the pandemic. I kind of went back to to before I had, you know, all those breaks or became somewhat, you know, famous or whatever. I went back to that first love of acting and I I started um collaborating with different uh photographers and I love I love doing uh photo shoots and working with different photographers and um and and finding directors like indie directors that I've always wanted to work with and reaching out to them and making that stuff happen you know what I mean I went back to the me of like really struggling to get that work instead of instead of the me just sitting back and waiting for my agents to send me an audition and then auditioning. And if I don't get it, then I'll wait for the next one. I, I really went out there and started finding stuff on my own. And, and, and it does, it sort of re sparks a, a newfound love for, for what we do. Right. It's like, it gets you hyped up and exhilarated again about, about the work. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah and it's, it, so it's this tricky thing of when your passion and when your talent and what drives you creatively becomes your career, mm-hmm. it's tricky sometimes to balance the passion with the business. Absolutely. You know, you have to be business minded, but you're also still a creative and you can't stay in this field if you're not passionate about it because then the work loses authenticity and yes. it loses joy. Yes. And so sometimes it does kind of take that struggle to reconnect with why you started this in the first place and why you set out on this path. And sometimes you need a little struggle and you need a little um, mm, fire lit under you to get you back to why you started in the first place. And yeah, so it, and it definitely is work, you know? When you turn your passion, your creative fuel into work, it does become work, but you still have ways to reconnect with the passion. And I think that usually does come out of like, okay, I'm not working a lot right now. I got to go back to what's authentic for me and make sure I'm still in touch with that so that people can see the passion and not just the the grind of it all. (laughs) And I think that's where a lot of actors and performers sort of you know, give up or like, oh, I'm, I'm done or I don't want to do this anymore. That, you know what I mean? It separates the people that are really passionate and, and, and serious about what they do and have a true love for it from those that are like, oh, fuck, it didn't work out. And I don't have the, you know, the, the drive or the strength to freaking try to make shit happen again. And they start to fall by the wayside. And but yeah, not us, not us, Jinx. <laughs> not not those of us bullied in high school right. having to dance for our approval. <laughs> I don't know how to do anything else. So I'm like, fuck, I got to keep this shit going. <laughs> oh, my God. I say that all the time because, you know, when I was senior year of high school, I became so certain um, that I wanted to pursue acting and that that was going to be my path that senior year of high school, I didn't take a science or a math class because I didn't need it for acting school, but it really did become clear. Like, Oh, I better be sure about this because no other college will have me (laughs) without my, without uh, that final science and math credit. But it does mean that at this point in life, I always, I I joke about it in my shows. I joke about it in my personal life, but 
it's kind of like, thank God something's working and I seem to be good at this because I have literally no other marketable <laughs> skills at this point. I started drag at 15. This has been my life for half my over half my life now. And yeah. if I had to do something else, it, it would be starting back at square one. And my degree's in theater, so I might as well, you know, I might as well ta- teach finger painting to preschoolers, you know? Right? I'm like, I could do a cooking show. I love to cook. So I'm like, sometimes I'm like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do a cooking show. I could do that. I'm still on camera dealing with food. Anyway. <laughs> I have my idealistic safety net plan B, and then I have my my um, emergency exit plan B. But my my idealistic plan B is like, if I ever wanted to retire from performing and being active in the industry, I guess I could always try to go teach at the college I went to. And that would feel like a nice little Hogwarts story. Like, I was a student here and (laughs) I pass it on. But um, would you, would you, yeah, would you teach it in drag though, Jinx, or would you do it? Oh no! Come on, getting up at six a.m. to teach class at nine in drag? No. Um. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You have um, worked on so many wonderful shows, and you have an upcoming um, film, Bros, um, which is kind of, you know, a lot of press just got released yesterday. Um, And it's funny, the press is spinning things in a way where it sounds like it's like this movie is not only groundbreaking it's actually good and i feel like it's it's funny because it makes it sound like oh who would have thought that this all queer performer would uh, uh, all queer performers in this film um about a queer love story who would have thought that would actually be good you know and not just the novelty of it and i think i mean that's so indicative of Hollywood and where we're at with queerness right now, where it's like, we want to see it. We want the representation. We want the novelty of drag queens and, and queer performers and trans performers. Um, But then we also don't actually give a lot of meat to those roles. And we don't give a lot of um, uh, real acting respect. Respect and responsibility. Yeah, yeah. or the put them in the put them in the in you know as the leads. You know, it's mm-hmm. yeah. Sometimes Hollywood likes all that stuff and like likes us, but will you put us in as the leads of a, of a studio film? You know what I mean? Like they've yeah. When, yeah. when this role has been written as obvious Oscar bait, are you going to give it to a queer performer who actually has lived experiences for that role? Right. Or are you going to give it to the straight guy who wants the Oscar that year? Exactly. That's my, <laughs> that's my ongoing um, yeah. uh, gripe. But this film, Bros, um, co-written by Billy Eichner and 
who's the other writer? The name's uh, escaping me right now. Nick Stoller. Yeah, who I believe also directed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it features an all queer cast, and yep. what's what's kind of groundbreaking about this is that all of the straight roles in the film are also played by queer performers. Doesn't sound like it should be that groundbreaking since for years, straight people have been playing queer people and everything. But here we flipped the script and it's it's groundbreaking and revolutionary. And I don't mean to belittle it because it is groundbreaking and revolutionary. But it's also funny because should this be this groundbreaking and revolutionary at this point? Freaking <laughs> act. Someone had to do it, so yeah. might as well do it. Yeah. Um, how does it feel to be a part of a groundbreaking revolutionary project that's all so good? That's also <laughs> actually good. <laughs> right. It's funny because I, I was a part of this this uh this script, this movie years before we even filmed it. Uh Billy asked me to do a reading of it um for you know for producers and some other folks that were interested in it so like a couple of years before we shot it we did a a a table read of it where you know the actors sit around and read from the script um so I was connected with it and then a couple of years passed and then you know they reached out and I actually auditioned for it for a different role um and uh but I, I I got the role that I play now in the film um but I, I, what, what drew me to the script and, and the whole project was just that it was good. It was a good script. I never thought, mm-hmm. oh, it's going to be the first, like, two gay leads in a movie. I, actually, in my head, I thought after all that press and all the talk was coming out, like, it's the first, like, gay studio. I was like, really? Like, this is the first one? I was like, oh, okay. Like, that wasn't, like the thing for me it was mostly that it was a hilarious script and billy eichner is freaking brilliant in his writing and in his acting in this movie watching him work like sitting across from him when we were shooting this movie i was like it was like taking a master class and like you know like comedy timing and he he's just brilliant he's so good and he's such a perfectionist you know he just wants to get it right which is so admirable. And it, it, it was, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it's funny because, it, you know, I know people keep saying, oh, all the queer actors are playing straight. But for years, I've, I've played more straight roles than I've played gay roles. So I don't, you know, I was, sometimes people will be like, oh, you're so lucky that, but I'm like, I don't think, I think that's sort of a, I don't know, there's a negative uh, sort of a nasty edge to that saying I'm yeah. lucky that I've gotten to play straight roles as if playing gay roles is not a good thing. Um, I think I've just sort of been on my, you know, journey and and hopping along and, and just, I've, I guess I've just, you know, I've, I've been, I guess I was good at like in high school and in school f- faking, you know, uh, or, or trying to not act gay. I guess that, paid off at the I don't I don't know what it is Jenks but I all I know is I've played a ton of of straight roles and and I've played a ton of gay roles and um you know I I just I feel like people are really gonna enjoy this movie and and it was really it actually was really nice actually to see like Jay Rodriguez Jay Rodriguez playing like you know uh one of the lead actors like straight like football loving like bro in the film like super straight and and uh, so that that was really uh, interesting and fun to see. And and um, I think her name is Amanda Bierce. I might be getting her last name wrong. Um, 
wonderful actress. She was in Married with Children. Uh, she's mm -hmm. queer and she plays, um, you know, the mother of, of one of the lead lead characters. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was a very special experience, the whole the whole process. And um, yeah, it was it, it was a blast. And I, I really do think people are going to going to dig the movie and, and, and enjoy it. And there and there are also a ton of uh, well, not a ton, but there are several uh, trans and non-binary actors that are in the movie that I had. I wasn't familiar with. And when I saw them and their talent, you know, displayed in front of me and them acting and, and being so good, I was like, oh, my God, these people need to be working constantly. So I'm glad at least they have this as a, you know, as a sort of a, a platform to for them to show their their talents, because I, I don't think a lot of people have seen their work. Some have, but not a lot. So, yeah, there was a lot of opportunity in this movie, which I which I love. And hopefully people will you know, we'll get more work from this that normally wouldn't, you know? Yeah. I, I have to say, you know, listening to you speak about this film and then also just kind of thinking of my own experiences. And I'm going to go back to this, this pull quote um, that I'm kind of obsessed with because I find it very funny, but I also find it very indicative of conditioning. And that's that like, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw the headline that said an all queer film and it's actually good. And I think about this in my own life um, when I sometimes am telling someone, you've got to watch this drag performance or you've got to watch this movie by drag queens. or And I myself have said it's a movie written by and directed by a drag queen and it's actually good. And I'm thinking, you know, it's not that we are known for putting out bad work <laughs> and that we have to qualify things by saying it's actually good. What it is, is that when something gets deemed comfortable, non-threatening, um, when something gets deemed as socially acceptable as far as representation of a marginalized group of people, when it's something like, oh, here's a way to introduce queerness to straight people that doesn't frighten them, yes. then that's the only thing you see for a while. And you just see that done over and over again. There's also, I think, there's also um, currently, it's kind of like, we uh, Hollywood finds performers that are totally non-threatening, and and this is nothing against the performer. This is Hollywood, right. but let's say um, they want to tell a queer story. Let's find uh, let's find a stereotypically attractive, non-threatening cis white gay man to play the every queer because we already know audiences respond well to this one performer. So this is the one performer we're going to use for this, for everything. And it's same with trans people. It's same with queer people of color. It's same with large people. Oh, yeah. um, they find same someone with, who's with socially acceptable. Yeah, with Latino mm -hmm. actors too. You know, they find those few like light-skinned Latino actors and then they put them in everything, you know, and that's the only yeah. sort of representation you see of that. Uh, of that. And I... And I feel like most of those performers who are probably feeling really lucky and really blessed to be in that position, to be the go-to, I know that more often than not, they're like, there's a lot of us out there, oh, you, yeah. know? Yeah. you know, you uh, know, I'm not the only 
yeah. queer trans person of color. Yes. And I think it's and I think it's their responsibility to then, you know, bring in those those actors and those performers that they know are, are, have wonderful talents that Hollywood is not, you know, giving an opportunity to. It's our responsibility mm-hmm. to then bring them in and be like, look, this person, I want this person to be in this movie with me. Or I, I think you should look at this actor, you know what I mean? And and make that happen. And we're kind of at this very exciting time where, I mean, for all the ills that social media can bring into our life, one of the benefits of social media, I think, is the immediacy within the immediacy with which we can see audiences respond to things. So let's say Hollywood does cast a new trans queer person of color in this role takes a chance on this person and then social media explodes because they love this person and they're excited for this person to find and then Hollywood has to take note like for years we've been thinking we have to be non-threatening to our audience and and only cast this one person for every queer role because that's who audiences respond to but social media is giving audiences a chance to tell Hollywood no we like this person and we like this person and we like stories from these people and we like stories to be told off authentically from the people who lived those experiences. And Hollywood is having to take note in a much bigger way than they ever have before and having to like actually own up to the responsibility of representation. Uh And it's not happening like overnight, you know, it's not, it it, it did, we're not suddenly, it's not suddenly, you know, the renaissance of queer entertainment, but we are on, I think, the precipice of the renaissance of queer entertainment. I think these are the beginning days of we've always ran Hollywood from behind the scenes and now it's time to run it in front of the camera as well. Hell yeah. <laughs> There's still a lot of work to do, but you're right. We're we're sort of on our way slowly but surely. Yeah. And I think I think having not seen Bros yet, but seeing the people involved with it, knowing the work of Billy, um, uh, knowing the work of a lot of the performers in the film, and then to get these, you know, to get uh, the first reviews coming out, I I think this is a great step towards a future where the word actually is not put in front of yes. really good yes. when in relation to queer and um, <laughs> trans yes. representation. Um, so congratulations for being a part of that. And thank you. Thank you. Last thing I'll say on this long-winded rant I've been on is, um, like you've mentioned, uh, you know, there's this praise that comes with being able to play straight as if it's like this um, unachievable skill that very few people have, yet queer people spend their entire life code switching. And even if it's subtle, like for me, being visibly queer I still drop my voice in situations where I feel like I need to butch it up a little bit or the opposite. If I'm very femme presenting that day, I'm like, I got to lean into being femme so I don't get caught out. You know, like Uh, um, we're having to act constantly and at a moment's notice. You sense that a situation calls for a different personality and you switch immediately. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Yeah. I want to so 
congratulations once more on Bros. I can't wait to see it myself. I want to talk about one of my very favorite shows of all time. Um, And I think it speaks to a lot of what we're talking about is Broad City, um, a show created by the two stars. And by I break, talk about Broad City all the time because I think the future of entertainment is in artists being the directors, the producers, having their voice unmuddled by the people who are just interested in money, yes. having the creative voice remain as pure as possible. Mm. And I think Broad City is a wonderful example of that. Can you tell us anything about your experience working on Broad City? (laughs) Yeah, first of all, I was a huge, huge fan of the show before I was cast in it. Um, I remember meeting Alana and Abby for the first time. It was at the White House Correspondence Dinner when Obama was still in office. And we were at the Vanity Fair party. And I was with Katie Lowe's, who who played Quinn on Scandal. And, um, you know, she's like a close friend of mine and we were hanging out and then we bumped into Abby and Alana and we were like, oh, my God, we love you guys. We love Broad City. And they were like, we love you guys, too. And then they were like, we were like, let's go get stoned. And we <laughs> we went out back and smoked weed with uh, us four with Alana and Abby and, and Katie and myself. And that's the first time I met them in person and expressed to them how much I love them in the show. And then, you know, a couple of years later, we got. I just got that offer to come in and play um, uh, play Jaime's boyfriend on the show. And I was like, oh, my fucking God, like, OK, I'm doing this. And I was super, super nervous. You know, I think it's it's I've done other shows where I haven't ever watched an episode of it. And I'm a lot more chill and relaxed because I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know. Who, who is this? Is this the lead? Like, you know, <laughs> you're not familiar with it. So it, you're not you're not nervous going into it. But with Broad City, I was super, super nervous. But. Those ladies, man, in that environment, it was so embracing and so accepting of of who I was and what I was bringing to the table. I felt I I I lost all that nervousness like right away and and jumped right into it and started playing with them and improving and uh, I just felt so so safe and free and and felt uh, able to take risks on camera, which you don't feel often, oftentimes you feel like you got to stick to the script and like on scandal or, you know, on law and order, stuff like that. You, you can't really improv on those shows, but with broad city, I was able to, and I did, I think I did four episodes. Ilana directed one of them. Lovely, lovely, lovely as a director and as a performer, of course. Um, But yeah, I was the, that, that, that's one of the things that I'm like, almost like a bucket listing, you know, I was like, oh man, I got to be in a broad city, you know, in a few broad city episodes and I'll never forget. I'll never forget it. I had an amazing time doing it. I love that. I just love hearing it because you love hearing the people that you admire are wonderful people, you know, (laughs) we've all heard the horse, but this brings me to my next topic. I'm going to quickly list off um, some of your TV, um, some of your TV uh, projects you've worked in. Um, this is in my notes here. I'm going to rattle them off. Um, Law and Order, ER, Party of Five, Chappelle's Show, Weeds, Scandal, Girls, Broad City, and Drag Race Season 11. Can't forget that. Um, and then I have an anecdote here in my notes that says... You were only meant to be on four episodes of Weeds, 
but they enjoyed working with you so much. They kept writing your character in, and um, by the end, you had appeared in 20 episodes over five seasons. And why I bring this up is kind of what we're talking about, but... I remember in acting school, I don't want to out this person because I want to have them on my podcast if um, if it works out. But let's just say in acting school, there was a famous alumni from Cornish College who got brought up a lot in class because he was, you know, one of the most commercially successful actors who ever went to Cornish. And um, one of my teachers who had remained good friends with this actor was constantly saying, you know why he works so much? is because he's a fucking joy to work with. Wow. And, you know, talent gets you a, a, a big way in this industry. But being someone that people want to work with and want to write for because you're enjoyable to have around is a huge, huge part of this. It, it, really, um, it really is. It really, really is. Yeah. How do you remain Guillermo Diaz um, in spite of commercial success? How do you stay grounded? How do you stay connected with who you are? What keeps you humble? What keeps you appreciating the work rather than um, going into diva mentality like uh, opulence? I own everything. (laughs) (laughs) I own everything. Um, I think it's, I think it's the, the fact of the, you know, the ebb and flow of this, of this business where I don't, I, you know, I don't take for granted when I'm working cause I know it's fleeting and it's gonna, it's not going to last forever. I'm in that moment right now. I just finished a film in New York, but right now I'm back to auditioning and I don't know what my next job is going to be. That keeps me, that keeps me humble. It keeps me, you know, it keeps me honest. It keeps me wanting to work hard. And being appreciative when I am working and being, you know, kind and, um, but yeah, I think the, the, the main key is that, uh, I don't, I don't take myself too seriously and I know how fleeting everything in this business is. So that, that just, you know, that keeps me being me. And, and, and I think the older you get to, you kind of see, um, people that were really famous or working a ton and now they're not. And once in a, I just watched a documentary with Adam West. I don't know if you've seen it. You know, he was Batman. He was the talk of the town for years. And then the show was canceled and then he couldn't work. And he was doing all these, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, being shot out of a cannon for like for commercials as Batman and doing all these things where um, he was like, well, I, I got to work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, you know, I think that just, uh, yeah, it just, I, I think that's it. That's basically how, how I feel and what keeps me just moving forward and, and working hard and, and not trying not to be a dick around people. Right. Just be nice. Don't yeah. be a dick. That's my motto. Cause <laughs> I will attest to it. I've, you know, I've worked with some people who have been extremely difficult in otherwise perfectly lovely situations like you're going to be difficult while these people are trying to give us the star treatment and you're going to and and you're going to be difficult okay yeah. you know you're not just being difficult for the people on the crew but you're making it a harder job for you your fellow queens or your fellow performers yes and i would say 9 times out of 10 I then don't see that person on on set much more after that. That's uh, so there's yeah. 
there are the rare occasions where I'm like, I work with someone and I'm like, I don't know how this person's ever going to get booked again. And then I see them on the next thing and I'm like, well, uh, you know, you, <laughs> people just want you that bad. <laughs> so it's not a steadfast rule, but it is, I, I would say 90% of the time, the people who work the most are the people that make working with them a joy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We are getting near the end of this episode, and I have my compulsory questions that I ask every guest. But before we get there, I just need to compare notes with you. Uh, You are a, um, I would say, hardcore Madonna fan. I think if you get someone's face tattooed on your body, that makes you pretty much a hardcore fan. Um, I want to know, because Madonna has been Madonna-level famous for over four decades? Yeah. I don't do math. We already talked about this. but Almost four decades. I think four decades. And that's that's huge, you know, um, to be that level famous for so long and to endure the bullshit she's had to endure pretty much because she's a woman at her level of fame. Like, I mean, you can't mince words. It's like she's endured the hardships of the career because she's a woman at her level. Mm -hmm. All of that aside, what is the Madonna album? Because I think everyone has at least one Madonna album that played some significant point or part in their life. What is your Madonna album? <laughs> uh, for me, it's Erotica for sure. Mm. You know, it was she released Erotica and then she released the sex book. She released her movie Body of Evidence, all sort of it at the same time that they were all part of that Erotica era. And it's the first time that I saw this woman that already was immensely successful and hugely like I think the most famous woman in the world at that point. And she put out a sex book where she's like naked in every single page in the book and doing all these provocative things. And she didn't give a fuck. And I think that's what, why she endured a lot of um, hate and a lot of people, you know, talking down to her and saying she was going to be a flash in the pan. I think also because not only because she was a woman, but she was also sexual. And I think people had a hard time with a woman, a successful, intelligent woman being successful in her art and being, uh, being, and being sex, being sexual as well. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that just, that I, I, I was in awe of that. I was in awe of, the, of, of, of her balls, of her guts and to keep moving forward, um, regardless of all the shit that everybody, I mean, the cover of the New York post called her a tramp on the cover. Like, that's crazy. That would never happen now to call a woman. What a tramp on the cover of your newspaper and everybody's laughing at her. And she was like, fuck you. That's right. I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to be a tramp and I'm going to fucking release a book about me being a tramp and you're still going to talk shit about me. Um, Yeah. She, she really, when people slut shamed Madonna at a time when slut shaming was just socially acceptable, you know, it was just totally fine to slut shame um, a woman for just having sexuality. <laughs> she doubled down. She turned around and went, oh, this is what's getting people mad at me. Watch me do it again. Yes. Watch me do it again on stage every night in my tour. And, <laughs> you know, I think I think it's easy for young people to see, you know, the joke about Madonna is constantly that she is um, a woman clinging to fame. But I don't see Madonna clinging to fame. I kind of just see Madonna being 
someone who's been ridiculously famous for almost four decades, just living the life of, yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what Madonna's reality is like. Yeah. And I was just saying this to a friend yesterday. Someone at Madonna's level of fame for as long as she's been famous, how does she even have a real conversation with any human being at this point? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, who yeah. does she talk to about, like, what she ate for dinner last night? Yes. You know? <laughs> I remember Rose O'Donnell saying once in an interview that Madonna's famous even around famous people. Even famous mm-hmm. people are like, oh, my God, there's Madonna. You know what I mean? She, It's like other level famous. Yeah. And... I think that does lead to sometimes Madonna saying really uh, seeming a little ridiculous, you know, at times because she kind of seems on a different planet. But I but I kind of love it because I'm like, how does this person how uh, what seems ridiculous to us might just be what her reality is because of that level of fame. And at my level of fame, I know the monster that fame can be in life and what you have to do and the boundaries you have to set up and the way you have to protect yourself from the double-edged sword of fame. I can't even imagine it. it, The fact that Madonna's still a functioning human being in society. (laughs) I just think, you know, um, I want her therapist someday because I can't even imagine the processing she has to do to just live her life. Yeah. Um, Yeah. My Madonna album is Ray of Light. Yeah. I discovered it in middle school and then music. So it was kind of Ray of Light and music were the one-two punch that got me through middle school and early high school. And I do mean got me through. Like, Like it really, Ray of Light got me into... On my next stage of life at that point. So, yeah, um, that's, a, that's our little, yeah. that's our Madonna rant, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's our Madonna corner of this episode. <laughs> These are my compulsory questions that I ask every guest and you are welcome to answer them however you feel, they're open to your interpretation. Um, Question the first, who is your celebrity crush today? (laughs) Oh man, I feel like I'm really crushing on Tyler Posey. Do you know who Tyler Posey is? (laughs) I know I know that name. Why? He was was, um, in uh, Teen Wolf, the TV show. The lead guy on Teen Wolf. He's all tatted up. He's like in a band now. He's super like edgy and hardcore. And I think he had an OnlyFans for a second too. Um, I know that Joseph is pulling up an image of him right now. Because once I see his face, I'm going to know exactly who you're talking about. Because I know I know the name. You don't forget a name like Tyler Posey. But Uh, um, I'm going to follow your lead and say my celebrity crush today is Ross Lynch, who played Harvey Kinkle on the the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, the Netflix reboot of Sabrina. Oh, my God. I have to go and find that now. There's Tyler Posey. Oh, there's Tyler Posey. Oh, oh right? yes. What a cutie. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Ross Ross Lynch was on Sabrina and is now in a band and is doing that same kind of actor to rock star fantasy. I um, love it. 
Rock. So I, I love when actors become rock stars because then they're shirtless all the time. My next question for you is, are you spiritual? Yeah, I'm definitely spiritual. Yeah, I grew up Catholic, but uh, but, you know, not a practicing Catholic, but now I'm absolutely spiritual. I think, you know, my religion is is uh, treat people with kindness and don't, you know, just be, be a good person and treat, treat people with kindness. And it's as simple as that, you know, just be a good person and help those who need help when you can. And yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely spiritual. Wonderful. I was raised Catholic as well. And I will say that the things that have um, been significant to, uh, to me in my life, even, you know, not being a religious person, not really believing in organized religion as a concept, you know, um, I will say that uh, the the practice of rituals in day-to-day life, um, and therapists will tell you too, rituals are extremely important. And it's one thing that I think is actually quite valuable from faith and religion, um, but you don't need faith or religion to create your own rituals and create your own day-to-day well-being exercises. So, <laughs> and it's nice to celebrate those things without the um, extra helping of guilt ladled on. <laughs> yes, yes, shame and guilt. I was driving by a church near where I live the other day, and it said confessions on Thursday. And I was, I remember thinking, oh my God, I was like a kid, like eight years old and having to go to confession. How like, what Mm -hmm. the fuck? Like how they were like, what have you done? That's bad that you got to confess. Like, can you imagine what that does to a kid? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, totally. And, um, what I will say is I am still actively working against the conditioning of, and we were just holiday Catholics. We weren't even like mass every Sunday Catholics. I never even went to confessional because I didn't get that far in my communion, you know. But um, uh, uh, my confirmation, I never had my confirmation because we just kind of were over it by that point. But uh, <laughs> after my mom had her third child out of wedlock, we stopped going to church. But uh, <laughs> But... What I will say is that here I am, a person who's all about sexual uh, sexual liberation, anti-slut shaming, pro-sex work. Uh, I shout from the rooftops what a slut I am and you know how lucky I am to yeah. be in an open marriage because of what a slut I am, blah, 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 blah. Won't shut up about it. And still, when I have sex with anyone other than my husband, I'm always like, oh, I did a bad thing and my ancestors are crying. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't go away. Even if you are someone who mentally believes yes. in what you believe in, there's still that like that feeling in your gut ah. that you did something wrong just by ah. being being a human being, doing human being. Yeah. Instill that guilt and shame hard in us. Yeah. It's deep inside of us. Yeah. Same with me. Yeah. The guilt is just nonstop about when I do something that I think could possibly be viewed as wrong. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. And then you have to stop and reflect and say, yeah, is this based in reality or is this based in something someone taught me? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I uh, I even have a stand-up bit, like, I was raised Catholic, so I'll have sex, but I'll just feel horrible for three hours afterwards. 
but then that's what also makes the sex so good because you have that guilt, which is like, oh, because it's so bad, but I want it so badly anyway, and I'm still going to do it. Well, that's a whole level that's a of whole other thing. that we can get into next time. We, um, but I do have one final question for you. Um, what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, man. You know, I've only done karaoke once in my life, and the song was Suddenly Seymour. Ah, that's one of my go-tos. No way. If I, if I have someone there who will sing the Seymour part... Um, it's one of my go-tos in Provincetown, which is where I met Billy Eichner um, some years ago. I was, I was really obnoxious with Billy, but I thought he could handle it because of, you know, Billy on the street. I'm like, if anyone can handle someone coming up to them and assaulting them with friendship, um, it's Billy Eichner. But I, I walked up to him, introduced myself. I was, you know, pleasantly surprised to see he already knew who I was. Um, I said, I've got a show tomorrow. I'll put your name on the list. You can come in. Just come on in two minutes before show start. And he says, it's my birthday, Jinx Monsoon. I'm going to try to make it, but it's my birthday. So I got to do birthday things, but I'm going to try to make it. And then later that night, I saw him again. Or no, later the next night after my show, saw him again out partying for his birthday. And I was like, you didn't come to my show, Billy. And he's like, I, I couldn't make it. I was doing birthday things, but here's my number. You can text me and I'll, I'll, I'll make the next one. And I said, I don't believe that's really your phone number. I think you're just passing me off. And then I pull up the number he gave me and called him and watched him answer his phone. Shut <laughs> up. Oh my God. He's like, Jinx, it's really me. I gave you my number. I, I gotta go back to my birthday now. He was so sweet and so funny and everything you'd want from uh, oh. from an interaction with Billy Eichner. He's the best. I started this story to say in Provincetown, I would oftentimes drunkenly go into the piano bar and at the end of the night we'd close out with Suddenly Seymour. Me just drunkenly wailing into the mic as Audrey. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's such so a if you and I if you and I can Oh, it is such It's such a satisfying yeah. song, right? It's just so beautiful. It's so good. The harmonies and everyone sings along at the end. Yes. And so if you and I are ever in the same city or yeah. if we're ever working on the same project and you and I can go out for a moment, do some karaoke. Please. You and me, suddenly Seymour, it's on. It's on. You have a standing invitation. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm so down. I'm down. To, I'm down to clown, Jinx Monsoon. I'm down to clown. <laughs> well, I am so happy to have been able to have this lovely and lively conversation with you, Guillermo. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Bros, <laughs> Bros drops in theaters September 30th. Do you have anything else you'd like to tell my listeners about? Or are we just going to really <laughs> hammer home this revolutionary and groundbreaking film? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I actually I just did a, a film in New York called uh, You Can't Stay Here, and it's a thriller with a director named Todd Vero, who's a wonderful, like underground, super provocative and edgy director, and and I'm super excited about that. He did it, and and one of my co-stars from Bros, I produced the film as well, and I, I cast uh, Becca Blackwell, who's one of our trans actors on bros who's just fabulous, and they play my love interest in this movie. So anyway, I'll stop there. <laughs> wonderful and producing as well as if yes. you weren't busy enough <laughs> yes <laughs> well thank you so much Guillermo it's been an absolute pleasure oh thank you Jinx thanks for having me I'm a huge fan of yours thank you
Oh, thank you. And thank you all so much for listening to Hijinx here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday. So make sure to search for Hijinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. Guillermo, where can they follow you on the socials? Uh, on Instagram, I'm Guillermo Diaz Real. And on Twitter, I'm Guillermo Diaz Yo. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Guillermo. And I will see you all next Wednesday for some more. Hi, Jinx. M. Oh. To listen to Hi Jinx one day early and ad free, sign up for Mom Plus at mompodcasts.plus. Hi Jinx is produced by Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, and produced by Joseph Shepard. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts, executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Big Dipper, and Joe Cilio.